Good morning. Turn in the scriptures to the word of God as it's contained in the 146th Psalm. 146th Psalm. Which reads, Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Blessed is he whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps faith forever, who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoners free. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. The Lord will reign forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations. Praise the Lord. Let's approach this Lord in prayer. Lord, our God and our Father, we hope in the next few minutes to carry out the command that's been given to us to praise you. We ask that you would send us from this place at the end of the service committed to praise you. We pray that you would consume us with that desire, that you would not relent, that you would show us what a privilege, what an honor, what a delight and a joy it is to lift up your name, to exalt you, to delight in your perfections. These things we ask that you might be honored among us, before us, within us, and before the watching world. In Jesus' name, amen. Come with me to Leipzig, Germany. In the year 1750, it's late July, and the great organist and composer Johann Sebastian Bach lies blind, dying, and dictating. His son-in-law, also his secretary, Johann Christoph Aldnickel, is scribbling furiously as the great master struggles to finish his final work, the art of the fugue. Bach pours the last breath of his genius into a work that explores Every facet, every possibility of harmony, of counterpoint, of grandeur, of complexity, of pure musical genius and beauty. Each of the 20 fugues of this work is richer and more complicated and more powerful than the last. In each of them, he is exploring everything that the discipline of the fugue can possibly do. A musical theme superimposed on top of itself, varied, inverted, transformed, reblended. It is vast. It is glorious. The old master's voice, cracking, sings a phrase. And in that phrase, he does something that he's never done before in all of his life. He puts the letters of his own name as notes 
into the musical score. In German, you can do that. There, there is an H in, in uh, the German musical system. So he put B-A-C-H into the, the fugue that he was writing. And his son-in-law wrote those four notes and looked up from the paper. There are those who say that Bach had done all he had to do. Others, I think wiser, understood that he had done all there was to do. The art of the fugue summarizes not just Bach's career. It summarizes the totality of music. It's that kind of a work. Now, I'm sure that all of you would enjoy that work if I played it for you, but why in the world am I telling you about J.S. Bach? Because... In Psalm 146 through 150, you've got a set of works that hold the same position in the Psalter as the art of the work, art of the fugue holds in music. They're called the Hallelujah Psalms because they use that phrase repeatedly and because they're completely consumed with every aspect, every reason, every motive, every form for the praise of God. Here at the end of the Psalter, the Holy Spirit is pouring out one last musical cataract. He's teaching us, summarizing for us, all the different aspects and forms and subjects for our praise to God. So with apologies to to Bach, I've called these last five psalms in the Psalter the art of the praise. That's what's going on here, the art of the praise. They do, for the praise of God, what the art of the few does for a great musical form. They expose us to all of the possibilities found in the exercise of delighting in God. And Psalm 146 has got the following structure. Section 1, verses 1 through 2, a call to praise. Section 2, verses 3 and 4, the foolishness of trusting in men. And section 3, verses 5 through 10, aspects and benefits of God's sovereignty. Basically, things about which to praise God. And the rest of these five songs continue this trend of going through all of the different kinds and kinds of and praises for the praise of God. Charles Spurgeon, taking a leaf from John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, opens his exposition of Psalm 146 with these words. The rest of our journey, he's talking about the rest of his trip through the Psalms, the rest of our journey lies through the delectable mountains. All is praise to the close of the book. Now, the reason he does this, he's reminding us that praise is a joyful duty. Got a question. Is there anybody here who can praise God while bored? How about this? Can you praise God while mad at your spouse? Can you praise God when it is taking absolutely every scrap of willpower not to smother a co-worker with a pillow? You can't do that, can you? No. Praise is a joyful duty. Our God calls us to rejoice in Him. 
Not to pay our obligations to Him out of cold necessity and half dread. Praise is not a satisfaction of God's needy ego. It's not flattery to appease somebody who can kill us if we get him mad. No, to praise God is to revel in the generosity with which he's made himself known. We're reveling in the generosity with which God has made himself known. Have you ever stopped to think that what God does when he makes himself known is not just give us a bunch of instructions that we got to follow. He's saying, no, look, look at this. See? Look at this beauty. Rejoice in this glory. It's yours. Take it. Delight in it. We celebrate the beauty of his attributes. We find ourselves exhilarated. Is that a word that we would normally associate with church? We find ourselves exhilarated that such a being should exist and that such a being should de desire to be present to us. Praise is the inevitable response to the discovery that the creator of the rolling spheres, ineffably sublime, has looked at a few motes of briefly animate dust crawling on a little wet rock and pays attention to them. Let's open up the psalm at the beginning, verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. I will praise the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praises to my God while I have any being. The psalm opens with a psalmist calling the congregation to praise. As usual, a corporate body is in view. We're singing a congregational hymn, as we did this morning. Actually, the reason I chose this text was so I could teach you that hymn. It's meant a lot to me over the last 33 years since I learned it in 1990. But immediately, as soon as he's called the congregation to praise God, he reminds himself, wait a minute, this means me. Praise the Lord. I will praise the Lord. Okay, what's going on there? Well, after he's commanded the congregation to praise, he commands his own soul. Now, that's not the first time in the Psalter that he's done this. Psalm 42 and Psalm 103 leap immediately to mind. It's not uncommon for psalmists to address themselves. Oh, my soul. That phrase shows up everywhere in the Psalter. Oh, my soul. He's talking to himself. Do any of you talk to yourselves? My children laugh their heads at how, much, at how much I talk to myself. I argue with myself. I lose. <laughs> Martin Lloyd-Jones famously said that it was perfectly okay for you to talk to yourself. Perfectly okay. You should do that. Talk to yourself. But don't let yourself talk to you. That's what he's saying. He's saying, don't let yourself, don't let your emotions take command. You take command of them. This is our psalmist position. He's standing up to his emotions. He takes order with his emotions. He makes his feelings do what he wants them to do. 
This is not an emotional, an emotional man. This is not somebody who's going to tell you to live long and prosper. That's not what's going on here. This is not an unemotional man. No. The emotions involved in praising God are intense in the extreme. They should be intense in the extreme. How in the world do you praise God unemotionally? How do you do that? You can't do that. You praise Him because you've been, you've been caught up. You have been, in a sense, raptured into who He is. And you can't help yourself. The overflow of His attributes pouring through you before your eyes and into your soul. How do you do that? Like this. You, you don't do it like that. There are powerful feelings here. But the worshipers here are choosing their emotions. They're not at the mercy of whatever stray feeling happens to walk through their heart at any given moment. Such regulated, selected, controlled emotion is not fakery. It's not acting. It's maturity. After all, why does God love you? You think God's emotions are fairly mature? He's had a little time, okay? Why does God love you? God does not love you because he's overwhelmed by your cuteness and can't help himself. <laughs> he loves you because he chooses to do so. Also instructive is the kind of action that's called for in our opening uh, in our, in our opening of the psalm. It's constant action. When are you going to praise God? Now the psalm puts very strict limits on exactly when you can and cannot praise God. The only time you're allowed to praise God in a psalm is when you exist. <laughs> I will praise God while I have my being. All of life is to be suffused with this attitude, with these words, with this tone of singing. Even our lamentation rests on a foundation of praise. To which we return again and again as we arm ourselves with the, with the God who is and who this God is. That's what praise is. Praise is arming yourself with who this God is. It is a description of His character, a description of our relationship to Him, a description of His invasion of our existence. And because none of that will ever be tainted with the slightest lack of perfection, anything we say about Him that is in any sense true is praise. The first thing that our psalmist does, after he's established that this is the way life is going to be, that I'm going to spend all my energy exalting this God and reveling in who he is, is he gives a nod for just a second to the alternative. Verses 3 and 4, the foolishness of trusting men. I praise God because I can trust him. Look at the alternative. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man, in whom there is no salvation. When, this, when his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. We don't know who wrote the psalm. 
Not a clue. Of course, because it's a psalm, David is a possibility. Anybody remember what David did for a living? He was a prince. But I tell you, if there's anybody who understood the fallibility that could still be in a person's mind while being a prince, it was probably David. Just take a little brief tour of 2 Samuel, 1 Kings. Solomon will, will tell you the same story. Ecclesiastes will explain that to you. It, if it wasn't David, it was somebody later. And the later you get in Israel's history, the less need you have to be reminded how unreliable men are. Even the great kings, your Davids and Solomons, your Hezekiahs and your Josiahs, all of them err. All of them disappoint. All of them die. And that's the good ones. As for Israel, when it came to kings, they went 0 and 19. There's not a single good king on the northern side of the divided kingdom until in 722 God says, forget this. Not one good one. They're all monsters. Now, if you really want to see what, what it is to rely on men and what can go wrong there, go home and look up a fellow by the name of Manasseh. But I digress. The lesson from this section of the psalm. Learn this. Learn this well. Write this down. On the mirror, in bold face, all capital letters, bright red ink. Write this down. Don't ever forget this. There are no political solutions ever. Did I leave any wiggle room there? There are no political solutions ever. Ever. Don't look to the government to make everything okay. On its best day, the government might keep your neighbor from killing you. Beyond that, I wouldn't hope for much. Now, now our psalmist gives some reasons why this is true. He says, here's why you don't rush to men for your salvation. One, they are the sons of Adam. Adam. That's the word that they use for man in verse 3. They're not just biological descendants, although that would be quite bad enough, thank you very much. They're descendants who share the nature. They share the outlook. They share the disabilities of that Adam that got us all in this situation in the first place. They share the same kind of being. They share that all of the fallibilities, all of the weaknesses, and therefore, in men... There is no salvation. The King James is even more pessimistic. Instead of a man in whom there's no salvation, the King James says, man in whom there is no help. It's one thing not to look to man to fix the whole problem. But if you read this the way the King James Version reads it, not only can it not fix the whole problem, not only is there no actual deliverance, the political arena doesn't even provide temporary relief. The power of man is the power to create catastrophe. And with increase of power comes increase of evil. 
I'm not the first to say that, am I? Power corrupts? Absolute power corrupts absolutely. So whoever's in power, he's a man. And when it comes to the use of power, that's not a good thing. But point two, he dies. When his breath departs, he returns to the earth. On that very day, his plans perish. Let's just say that you briefly get a good one. Keyword here being briefly. It doesn't matter. He's going to die. All that he did is going to be wiped out. But I don't want to be too pessimistic here. The psalmist is not trying to make us despair. Okay, the idea of having a good political leader is a bit too fantastical to appear in a book as realistic as Scripture. And our psalmist is not trying to make us despair because no good political leader will live long enough to help us. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, you need to enjoy hope because the mortality of evil political leaders places limits on the amount of harm they can do. Do not despair because nobody good will live long enough to accomplish anything. Hope because nobody evil will live long enough to accomplish anything permanent. Human problems are spiritual problems. They're problems of a depraved and darkened heart. No mere man, certainly not one with a depraved and darkened heart, can do anything about that. But our psalmist calls us to trust the God who can do something about that. And when you find yourself surrounded by people who are 8,700 kinds of unreliable, and the question is, under which rib is the knife going to go when he backstabs me? What does it feel like to know that one infinitely more powerful is that infinitely more trustworthy? Verses 5 through 10. These are aspects and benefits of God's sovereignty. Verse 5 opens with the word blessed. And the rest of the psalm gives a line-by-line description of the God who does all this blessing. Blessed is he, we're told, one, whose help is in the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord his God. Not just any God. He had plenty of those in the ancient Near East. The God of Jacob. Why that name? Why the God of Jacob? Because the God of Jacob is the God of a person. This is a God who has entered a relationship. This is a God who made and will keep promises. It's not just that everything this God says is objectively factual. That's nice, but that's not what's in view here. Now, the God for whom everything he says is objectively factual is also the God that is in relationship with me, who's made promises to me, who's put his name on me, whom I know. I know not because I was smart enough to figure things out. I know because he opened himself up and revealed himself to me because he loved me. We take that for granted, but consider the insane, breathtaking audacity of that claim. 
when you, when you really wrapped your mind around who it is that you're talking about when you use the word God, the insane audacity of the claim that He loves you ought to give you a start. Seriously? That that kind of a being loves me face to face and in person? Am I delusional to believe something like that? Nope, He told me. He's made a promise. He lives in a relationship. And because of that, I can use a certain kind of pronoun. I can use a possessive pronoun. The Lord, His God. How blessed are you if the Lord your God, the Lord your God, belongs to you? If there's a sense in which the eternal God is your property. I mean, we're used to the idea that He owns us. What's your only comfort in life and death? He owns us. That's true. But the converse is also true. There is a sense in which He has given Himself to us as our possession. The Lord, His God. And in that context, you have this combination of health and hope. He, help and hope. He under, upholds us with the strongest of arms, and He forges His promises into future facts. For the world, hope is a desperate wish. For us, hope is future fact. For us, hope is carved in the diamond stones of eternity and is absolutely and forever unalterable. God will do what God has said. Who is this God who made heavens and earth, the sea, and all that is in them? There are no maverick molecules. There is no place that is out from under God's, that is out from under our God's jurisdiction. The abyss of deep heaven is one of his thoughts. The terrifying, uncontrollable sea that all the pagan gods feared is a tiny droplet. The whole earth is a grain of sand. This is the ultimate friend in high places. What else do we hear about him? Who keeps faith forever. To keep faith. The word is emmet. Faithfulness, trustworthiness, reliability. Indeed, the word for faithfulness and the word for eternity are very close synonyms. That's important. The word for faithfulness and the word for eternity are almost exactly synonymous. Now, what do you know about eternity? It ain't brief. We're dealing with someone immutable. These words present the theological idea of God's immutability as a practical reality with space-time implications for our lives in this world and the next. Our immutable God is not merely static. He is trustworthy. He does not change His mind about us depending on how we act. He already knew how we were going to act before He made us. 
you are more surprised by your own actions than he is. He tells us who he is. He tells us what he is going to do. And his word is, is as eternal as it is infallible. He is not moody. Can you imagine the screaming, howling hell of a universe presided over by a moody, in, a moody omnipotence? He is not moody. When all around my heart gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. Verse 7, who executes justice for the oppressed. That's both hope and warning. The words for justice and oppression are opposites, which is interesting. Because both justice and oppression refer to the use of force. The oppressed are those who are victims of the illegitimate use of force. God's justice reverses their position. Intrinsic to the immutable character of God is His judicial reply against sin. Why must God deal with sin? Because God is God. When is God not going to be God? Don't hold your breath. God is who He is. That's His name. That's the most fundamental fact about Him. He is who He is and He doesn't become something else. He deals with injustice. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Yes, it is a good thing and it is a bad thing. Why is it a bad thing? Because I'm the unjust. And we have a lot of trouble when, when, when justice gets too close. We have a lot of trouble reconciling ourselves to the idea that God has enemies and that we are candidates for that position. And it's pretty grim when you're in that position. Indeed, we're not just candidates for that position. We have abandoned that position. We've been there. And it wasn't our idea to leave it. It certainly wasn't done by our power. Intrinsic to this idea of the immutable character of God is His judicial reply against sin. He will have the last word. Those who have no power in this world, those who are downtrodden by the wickedly powerful, they have the guarantee of the God who is truth itself that they will be vindicated, that their losses will be restored. And those who oppress those people have the other side of exactly the same guarantee. It cuts both ways. The next thing we're told about this God is He gives food to the hungry. And this is about physical hunger. This is about God providing for our physical need. But there's a concept in poetry, and this is poetry, called metonymy, the use of a part for the whole. Okay, we, we often talk about the White House, but in circumstances where we mean the whole of the American government. We often talk about the gavel as a metonymy for the whole of a, of a judge's uh, authority. 
We take the wheel. That means driving. So when we talk about hunger here, it's a symbol for all need. All need of any kind in any aspect of life. Yet the God that we praise does give us food, but He also makes us full and complete. The same idea shows up in some other Psalms, like Psalm 23, verse 1, which you could quote to me. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. How about Psalm 103, 5? Who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Satisfies. What is it like when life, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, and by our appreciation of the providence of God, satisfies that's what's promised here. Yeah, I'll get you your burger and fries. We'll take care of that. But I am going to be to you a fullness, a satisfaction, a sense of completeness, a sated delight. That's what praise does. That's the state of mind that praise brings about. I have this complete God who loves me to the shedding of his own blood and I have room to complain. I have this complete God whose triune nature has reached out of heaven and scooped me out of the gates of hell and made me his son and his heir. And I am poor? Seriously? There is satisfaction. There is a fulfilling of the emptiness that's found in the praise of God. We go on to, the Lord sets the prisoners free. Again, release from many kind of bondage shows up all over the Psalter, all over the Old Testament, but especially in the Psalter. A couple of examples, Psalm 68, 6. God settles the solitary in a home, or in another translation, he puts the solitary into families. He leads out the prisoners to prosperity. I have to admit, I've never done time in Angola. I have a feeling it would be unpleasant. But I do know something about what it's like to be lonely. And I bet you do too. I bet you know what, it's, what it feels like to feel cut off from the people around you. To sense alienation, division, lostness. I bet there's not a person here who has not tasted solitary confinement at his own living room table. That happens to all of us. And yet this ordinance of the praise of God brings us into divine company. It breaks the bondage of loneliness and alienation. It brings God's people together into the body. It delights them with a shared love. It sets them free from anger, from resentment, from sin, from darkness. The Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people. 
who are prisoners. That's one of many things that Jesus means when he says, the truth will set you free. Verse 8, the Lord opens the eyes of the blind. Now getting physical sight does happen a handful of times in the scripture. And it may be that the psalmist is giving a nod to that. But as in most places, there's more to it than that. Mostly, verse 8 concerns God's revelation of himself, his revelation of his ways, his revelation to those whose finitude, those whose fallenness would not allow them to discover him for themselves. By nature, we do not want to see God. We don't want to understand his ways. We are willfully blind to the light that is in him. Here, the regenerated believer thanks God for overcoming in himself, for overcoming in me, the self-inflicted blindness that's common to all men. Self-inflicted blindness. That's what it's like to be a fallen man. Everybody, every man, every woman, every child, that's how we come out of the package. Self-inflicted and determined and obstinate blindness. We cannot see because we will not see. Can you think of anything more difficult to overcome? Can you see why nothing short of omnipotence can break down that door? The regenerated believer is thanking God for overcoming that self-inflicted blindness. Now, I don't know God because I'm wiser or smarter or more perceptive than my neighbor. I know God because he has given me eyes to see him, because he has made himself known. Because he's overwhelmed my blindness with his light. I praise him because he did not leave me as I was. And as I wanted to be, he seized me. He healed me. He made me see. <coughs> the Lord lifts all those who are bowed down. <coughs> All over this altar, Zion sings of the encouragements of a covenant God. God is in covenant, and that, that encourages us. It gives us hope because he made promises. They're going to be kept. Psalm 103, 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. Does that sound like Aristotle's unmoved mover to you? How about the next one, Psalm 147 too. The Lord builds up Jerusalem. He gathers the outcasts of Israel. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Anyone who has known fear of punishment, who has known loneliness, who's known alienation, who's known fragility, who has known depression, has cause for praise at a gatherer of outcasts, a healer of the brokenhearted, a binder up of heart wounds. Next we're told that God loves the righteous. The Hebrew word there is a tzaddik. A tzaddik is not just a good person. There's a bit more to it than that. A tzaddik is someone who's been vindicated as righteous by God. It's one who has been justified. 
It's one for whom, by whatever means, God has enabled himself to say, this one is mine. This one owes my law no debt. This one has been found innocent of any wrongdoing. This one is fully in compliance with every detail and intention of the spirit of my word. Look at this one and see what my grace can accomplish. This is how the justified man is presented on the last day before a vast audience of angels, demons, and men. Whatever trash you wanted to say about this man, whatever, whatever crimes you wanted to, to put on him, this one is mine. He bears my name, and in him I'm pleased. Thank you. <sighs> My doctor brought me some dihydrogen monoxide. The idea that God's going to point to me, me of all people, and say to the ranks of angels, demons, and men, this is what my grace can accomplish. Well, obviously, he's lauding his own accomplishments. As well he should. As well he should. God indeed does love the righteous. But make no mistake, the love came before the righteousness. Yeah. Verse 9, the Lord watches over the sojourners. Okay, what's a sojourner? Uh, we're vaguely aware of that word, but it's not one that we use in common parlance. So what is a sojourner in an Old Testament context? Well, here it's an alien, a non-citizen. It's somebody who does not have any inherited land rights. He is a temporary inhabitant of the land. He's a newcomer. He's got very limited rights under law. For this reason, he would be very, very easy to exploit. Another reason that our psalm gives for praising God is that God looks out for people like this. People who don't have anybody else to look out for them. Those who have little to no social standing, those who do not enjoy the full protections of the law or of citizenship in the commonwealth, God sees, God knows, God watches, God supports. Again, this is both hope and warning. We find hope in the God who knows all our circumstances, and we are warned by a God who knows how we treat our vulnerable neighbors. Take whichever, either side of that verse you want. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Throughout Israel's history, God requires that widows and orphans be cared for. He still requires that. That's why we prayed for them today. That is a phenomenon unique in the entire ancient world. You need to understand that what we take for granted as just basic common civil decency, you take care of your widows and your orphans. Well, that would have been a, a real newsflash to anybody outside of Israel in the ancient Near East. Until well into modern times, Places not affected by biblical revelation 
were characterized by the fact that women and orphans, widows and orphans, were just left to die, period. That was the way it was. Sometimes they weren't left to die. Sometimes they were outright killed. Why well, go to all the fuss and bother of letting them die when you just take them out immediately? That's what the world was like apart from the gospel, apart from the, the, the revelation of the Old and New Testaments. Deuteronomy 10, 18. Talking about God, he executes justice for the fatherless and the widow. He loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Psalm 68, 5. Father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. It is a mark of the success and power of biblical revelation that we don't see how insanely revolutionary these ideas were in the 10th century B.C. Anybody else reading this would have said, say what? That's not what we're supposed to do. They're not worth anything. It's a mark of how strong the Bible has been that we don't get that. That the most secular among us would say, well, of course you take care of your widows and orphans. Your wild-eyed, rank-stinking atheist would say, well, of course you take care of your widows and orphans. Yeah. This is why. It was God's idea. Then we get this. But the way of the wicked he brings to ruin. This was hard for me. It remains hard for me. Because remember, I'm the wicked. But it, the difficulty of dealing with the fact that one of the things we are commanded to admire about God is that he takes vengeance on sin. And that is a good thing. We've been steeped in the gospel of grace our whole lives. And we've heard all about forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness and forgiveness. And that's a good thing too. And that's a necessary, problem, a necessary place for us to start. We want to see all our friends forgiven. We want to see our family members forgiven. We want to see the whole world reconciled to God. There is no one who has sinned too severely to be forgiven by God. But there are those who have sinned too long. You see that difference? Those who have sinned too long. I don't know when the door of the ark will close. I don't know when the sun will set on God's mercy. I hold to an eschatology that strongly suspects Jesus is not coming back for a while. That's about as precise as I want to get with that. Okay? I strongly suspect that it'll be a good long time. But there is absolutely nothing in Scripture that forbids him to come this afternoon. That could happen. And it doesn't have to be that cataclysmic. We could deal with the question from the point of view of our own lives, what I might even call the shorter cataclysm. That when we die, we're going to have to deal with God face to face. And then the day of mercy will be over. 
and God will deal with us decisively and righteously. And that decisive righteousness is a matter for admiration and glory and praise. That decisive righteousness and vengeance upon sin is a thing to admire and praise and glorify God for. And it takes a sinful mind like mine quite a stretch to wrap its brain around that idea. I'm not comfortable with it. I'm not good enough yet to be comfortable with that. I understand why it makes you itch. But here it is. The way of the wicked he brings to ruin. Remember, this is in the middle of a display of things about God that make us happy. We praise God for his vindication of his righteousness by the destruction of his enemies. Evil people are God's enemies, and he deals with them. Sometimes he deals with them directly. Psalm 147, 8. The Lord lifts up the humble, he casts the wicked to the ground. Sometimes he uses means, and this is where it gets really scary. I couldn't pray this. Psalm 149.5. Let the godly, in case you were listening, that's us. Let the godly exult in glory. A little bit further down. Let the high praises of God be in their throats and two-edged swords in their hands to execute vengeance on the nations and punishments on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. Does that give anybody here the creeps? He's almost finished when he says that. This is, this is close to the climax of the psalm. The, the quote here that I just gave, that's from two psalms. Oh, that's psalm, psalm 149. It's three psalms down the, down the book. But that's the ethos. That's the air that our psalm is breathing in this particular passage. God's going to vindicate himself with and without our help. The smoke of the torment of the wicked is a pleasing aroma, not just to him, but to us. That's hard to deal with. That requires enormous maturity, which I confess I do not yet possess, and I'm not even sure I want. But it's in the text, I've got to deal with it. That's what's there. God means business. God's righteousness is serious and glorious. It is valuable and worthy. And it will be shown to be what it is. It will be made known. And where does he end? Having climbed this ladder of praise, gone up all the way to the vindication of God's righteousness, not just before us, but vindicating God's righteousness within us, Holding us up as displays of the perfection of God. Wrap your brain around that idea. Holding us up as displays of the righteousness of God because of what He's done by the, the work of His Spirit, by the sacrifice of His Son, by the, the article, the decree of justification, by the, the spiritual acts of adoption, 
and <coughs> sanctification, what he's done, he says this. Reign, how long? Forever. Your God, not just any God, your God, O Zion, to all generations. That righteousness, those perfections, those attributes, those glories, everything that we've been taught to delight in, re rejoice in, and to be overwhelmed that it's being worked into us. The things at which we stand in awe, not merely because we get to see them, but because we've been drawn into participation in our union with Christ, and these realities take root in us? Seriously? That goes on forever. 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 There's only one response to that. Praise the Lord. Lord God, we do praise you. We praise you before mysteries we can't swallow, we can't fathom, we can't understand. We praise you for the perfections of your deity, which you share with us in so many ways, inside and out. We pray, Lord God, that you would work this spirit of constant praise and delight in you into us in ways that we cannot and do not want to escape. We pray that we, you, we would know you. I mean, really, really know you. And out of that knowledge, out of that participation in your being, we would exult. In Jesus' name, amen.